0: Hello and welcome to this first edition of Podularity for 2010. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest in this first programme of the new year is Hilary Mantel, winner of the 2009 Booker Prize for Wolf Hall, the novel in which she charts the rise of Thomas Cromwell from abject beginnings to Henry VIII's right-hand man. Shortly after her Booker win in October, I was lucky enough to spend an afternoon interviewing Hilary about the book, An edited version of the interview appeared shortly afterwards on the Blackwell site, blackwell.co.uk, but this is the first opportunity to hear the whole interview. I took as my starting point the Hans Holbein portrait of Thomas Cromwell, which probably shapes to a large extent many people's view of the man. In it, he looks hard, cold, even cruel. That portrait is incorporated cleverly into the fabric of this novel. Late in the novel, Cromwell is confronted with a vision of himself that others see and it comes as a shock to him. I asked Hilary to tell me more about what she was doing in that scene with images and self-images of the man.
1: Yes, I I think when Holbein painted a courtier, he was in a way painting the man's office and a a Tudor minister didn't want to look pretty, he just wanted to look powerful. But of course, because Holbein's a genius, there's always an extra dimension there. In my book, when Cromwell sees the portrait, he is rather shocked by it. He's got no illusions about being handsome, but the hardness of the portrait takes him by surprise. And the way his hand is gripping the roll of paper as if it's an offensive weapon. And he says, I look like a murderer. And his son says to him, didn't you know? Which is quite a shocking moment, really. Now, what I noticed immediately about the picture is how Cromwell is penned into a small space. It looks as if Holbein has said, sit there. And then he's pushed the table against him. There's another table at the side of him. He actually can't move. And in my second book, Cromwell learns to live with the portrait. But he realises increasingly that Hans was right, he can't move. His scope of action as an idealist as opposed to a practical politician is now severely curtailed. And so he says, artists know the truth before we do. So I wanted to consider what might be the experience of having your portrait in your house, learning to relate to it as as another self. And then later though, this is out with the scope of the book, the original gets lost, which is quite piquant because of course, I think the original Cromwell has got lost.
0: So it's a sort of moment of confrontation really of him seeing himself in an outsider's perspective, which in the book itself, maybe he's not he's not confronted with so very often
1: yes i don't think any of us can be aware even now in an age when we see multiple photographs of ourselves of quite how we present ourselves to others and in this age of course images were much rarer and it's perhaps rather unfortunate that that portrait and and the miniature which is very akin to it, are the only images we we have of Cromwell. Mm. Or they're the only surviving images anyway. And certainly, you have a sense of a very grim person, which is very much at odds with the picture the Spanish ambassador gives of him. Because he emphasises that in conversation, Cromwell is someone who lights up. And that heavy face is mobile and his eyes are always on your face and he's always the ambassador says trying to work out what you make of what he's just told you so you get almost the opposite impression and of course he was a man of terrific energy and that's why it interests me that Holbein seems to append him in there so that he's forced into stillness it's as if someone is forced into taking stock of themselves
0: I know that Wolf Hall is a book that you wanted to write for a long time and I wondered did you those years ago know that you wanted to write about the Tudor court but not that Thomas Cromwell was going to be the way to do it or was Cromwell always from the very first time you conceived the project was he the way into that world
1: very much I wanted to write about Cromwell There isn't any other figure I would have picked, he was the main attraction because I was really interested in the path he took from very humble origins to the councils of state, to be the king's right hand man, to be an earl. Other people rise from a humble background but they invariably come through the church. Cromwell didn't take that path he he very much created the conditions in which he could succeed but by doing so huge backwash of resentment and ill will which I suppose must have seemed in his own mind indefeasible at times he had the, the example before him of his patron and mentor Cardinal Wolsey and, and his fourth in power and so you might say he must have known that all along he was bound not to succeed, and you know that saying: all political careers end in failure sooner or later. But he obviously thought the game was worth the candle, yeah. and with the odds stacked against him, he he persevered. And if he had been able to do even a fraction of what he would have liked to do, the the country would have been a very different place. But he was always fighting against a self-interested parliament and against entrenched conservative interests. But I'm interested in the radicalism of his thought, which I will be able to unfold more in the sequel to Wolf Hall.
0: As a novelist, it must have been attractive to you that there was a big blank in his from his mid teens to his mid twenties when he goes abroad. We 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 know really very little about what he was doing. And I imagine that that allows you certain imaginative freedom as a writer.
1: Yes, it did, although I I chose not to construct his story. I chose to construct it only through his memory, which comes in flashes. I wanted to, to catch the process of memory as it's happening, which is haphazard really, not logical. And we never know what triggers episodes of the past to come back and possess us, so that was the way I wanted to work it. I think we're pretty sure that he did join the French army after he'd run away from home at the age of around 15. And then there are various sightings of him in different Italian cities. The various rumours, some of which are collected by John Fox in, in The Book of Martyrs, all these stories can't be true but they're all of interest. And because I'm without sources really for this time of his life, there's a really rubbishy Elizabethan play about Thomas Cromwell, which is obviously the product of many different hands and seems to be various different plays as well, mixed together. But in this play, Cromwell is a kind of trickster figure and he goes around Europe with his comic manservant and they have adventures. And I thought that I would try to preserve in my presentation of his character something of this tradition, which is obviously how the Elizabethans saw him. And many of the stories that John Fox tells about him, though you wouldn't think it of the Book of Martyrs, but they. They have a certain blackly comic flavour. And I wanted to try to preserve that as well. This is Elizabethan tradition, but it's the nearest thing we have to go on. And it wasn't until later that Cromwell became the unsmiling and grim figure of the portrait.
0: I mean, the, ob- the obvious thing to do, I suppose, for a novelist would be to take the blank and to fill it in and to use the blank in order Mm -hmm. to explain what comes later and I thought what you did was so much more subtle because you refuse to fill in the blanks and in a way you allow that blank to be something which everyone who meets him has to confront because so often there are people saying you know who are you and um, I think the Duke of Norfolk says, You are a person. And that's about as far as he can get to define him. He's a person, but he, can't, he yes. can't sort of place him and ascribe any kind of lineage or identity or explain him away. He cannot be explained away. And I thought it was very interesting the way you, you allowed little things from his past to kind of seep through, as you say, in memory, but, but didn't sort of give, a, give an explanation of who he was.
1: I think this is true to what happened because it would have soothed the feelings of the court if they could have found him a pedigree. But when they actually came up with some obscure Cromwells, who had been great men, but had lost all their money, and they said, you're one of these, aren't you? He he refused to be, which is a very singular thing for a courtier of that time to do. But I think maybe the mystery was valuable to him, that he didn't want to be added up by people. There were all sorts of rumours over who he was. I mean, it's interesting that people said his father was an Irishman, which he was not as far as we know. But what did that mean, you see, in the context of the time? It puts him as even more of an outsider. I think he may have been someone who was content to accept other people's projections and mirror them back. And he doesn't seem to have taken any interest in putting the record straight.
0: And uh, Henry, at one point, says he he'll get his heralds onto the case and will construct him a mm. sort of, you know, manufacture him a, mm. a pedigree. And Woolsey, his his great mentor, creates all sorts of you know outlandish stories for him. So there's yes. there's clearly a desire to try to to try to construct something that will explain the man that he has become.
1: Yes, yes, that's right. Well, This is my device, that Wolsey tells elaborate lies about him, which, of course, don't fit at all the persona he projects. And this is a sort of running joke. But the thing about the construction of the pedigree is is actually real. Cromwell's reaction was to say, I wouldn't wear another man's coat that is to say, another man's coat of arms, uh, for fear that he should rise and pluck it from about my ears. And he obviously had a feeling that it was essential to preserve that integrity, even if he was the only person who knew where his integrity lay. And his past, I assume, was a source of shame as well, because it wasn't simply the fact of coming from such a low place, as his contemporaries said. It was the fact that his father was always in court, that he was a drunk, he was violent. If it hadn't been for his long record in the local courts, we wouldn't know anything about the Cromwell family at all.
0: Do You say come from a low place and the, and the book starts literally. With, C- with Cromwell on the ground, uh, you know, as low mm-hmm. as he can go, but he's been beaten, he's been abused by his father. And that relationship, you know, from the start is clearly, is clearly one that has set the tone for, for much of the man he, he, he goes on to become, that, you know, deeply troubled relationship with his own father.
1: There, there were all sorts of uh-huh. stories current in his lifetime about why he'd run away from England that he was in trouble with the law. And I've really chosen to believe that he was potentially in trouble with the law. He was certainly in trouble with his father. Start him off, as you say, at the point where he thinks, my father could actually kill me now. So you start this great project with your, your character half an inch from death This scene brought in its wake all sorts of decisions that I hadn't yet made about the book because as soon as I saw this picture in my mind I realised that my viewpoint was actually behind Cromwell's eyes as the boy looks at the stitching of his father's boot I had realised the viewpoint and that brought the present tense with it so all the decisions about the book had really been taken in one line I think Henry VIII has an ambivalent relation relationship with his own father. In many ways, Wolsey stepped in to be his father, um, and a much more indulgent and cheerful father, much more understanding than Henry VII had been. And in a sense, I think, although there was not much more than about fifteen years between them. I think it's possible that Cromwell found a good father in Woolsey also. And then there's this interesting relationship between Cromwell and Henry, in that Henry is shadowed by his older brother, Arthur, who should have been king. And everyone is bound to ask what would Arthur have been like if he was king, if he had lived uh, the age gap between Henry and the elder brother is the same roughly as between Cromwell and Henry assuming Cromwell was born around 1485 and then of course for Henry there's there's the question of not being able to 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 have a son himself and I've raised the question in the book is it possible that some men actually can't grow up Until they have a son? Um, That's a question I leave dangling, but there's certainly something unresolved in Henry until he has his heir. But unfortunately, it does nothing to improve his character thereafter. I think also about Cromwell himself. Whatever his detractors say about him, one thing he was was a good father. His little girls died, we presume, in one of the summer epidemics. So he only had one child left, his son Gregory. Unlike Thomas More's son, Gregory seems to have been a rather underpowered character. And I'm thinking a lot about how does a son live up to a father like Thomas More or Thomas Cromwell. More of that in, in the second book. But... Thomas Cromwell seems to have been assiduous in making sure that Gregory was educated as a prince would have been educated. And then he married him, so to speak, into the royal family because Gregory Cromwell married Jane Seymour's sister. So for the blacksmith's grandson then to be related to the king, this was obviously a very purposive path Thomas Cromwell was walking but he took the utmost care of Gregory and it was obvious that Gregory was not to pass through any of the experiences that he had had himself which of course does raise the question if your father arranges every step of your growing up how do you ever manage to do it?
0: And although he, he lost two of his three children, his own children, he does act as a surrogate father figure for many other young characters in the book, doesn't he?
1: Yes, his nephew, Richard, took his name and became Richard Cromwell. He's the ancestor of Oliver Cromwell. He was a talent spotter and he was a nurturer of talent wherever he found it and he didn't obviously he didn't mind about people's backgrounds and sometimes you think it was a commendation to him if someone who came along was a bit rough around the edges because he could see his own story mirrored in theirs there's a wonderful letter he wrote recommending someone to be taken into a household a young man whom he says i grant you appearances are against him and he's somewhat wild But then he goes on to say that he thinks he will prove a very loyal servant if he's properly trained and he's very intent that people should have their opportunities and that one mistake should not be held against them. He also seems to understand that young people in love do incredibly peculiar things like when his lieutenant and kind of surrogate son, really, Rafe Sadler he made um, what looked like a disastrous marriage to a very poor woman and Cromwell backed him up in that and in fact they were very very happy. There's another instance where a young man he sent to Calais falls in love with one of the daughters of the ruling Calais families and the family say absolutely not and Cromwell digs his heels in gets get, he gets involved, and he raises an almighty fuss, and they are they are allowed to marry. One doesn't, as one historian think of him as a sentimental matchmaker, one historian says, but he he does seem to understand that young people cannot live their lives with the accumulated experience of half a century. They do certain things because they are young. Mm. He wants, in other words, to give people a chance to retrieve their position after they've made a mistake, which makes you think about his own life. One thing that was said of him was that he was always grateful and attentive to anyone who had shown him kindness in his early life. So. We must assume that he felt that sometimes he'd come to the brink of disaster and someone had hauled him back. Personal persons unknown, unfortunately.
0: You mentioned the point of view and how it really sort of sprang from that first scene and, and feeling you'd, you'd found the voice. And I think you compared it to the sort of the sort of camera. And I thought that was a very good analogy because in a way, it's not a first person narrative, it's a third person narrative. Mm. And it's as though the camera is maybe on his shoulder, or yes. sometimes in- identical to his eyes, but sometimes just at one slight remove. So it's, it's, right. it's not it's not coming through the first person, but it's coming through a third person that's, that is very close to, but not identical with Cromwell's own consciousness.
1: I think that's right. It's, it's another way of doing things. It's, it's very intimate. And this is why I always say he and not Cromwell. I try to call him by his name as little as possible because we just assume that he is Cromwell unless we're told otherwise and we're looking through his eyes and then it came to me that actually I should organize this book as if it were a series of films and this is why in each chapter I have three sections and you have a third act which is Shorter and some kind of payoff to the rest. Well, once I got that idea, it helped me to organise the material into a dramatic shape because the facts are so intractable and the facts are so many. And when you want the facts, they simply aren't there. That just handling the data and finding a form for it is one of the challenges of this sort of book, I think. That's not something I expect the reader to notice. It's just, I think that the organization and structure you put into a book is not directly perceived by the reader, but indirectly it's what holds the thing together and helps the reader feel safe in a complicated narrative, that there are these repeating patterns. And that seemed to work quite well. I, I I'll carry that over into the next book.
0: Do you have a set of rules or is it more intuitive than that for how you deal with historical reality, what you what you allow yourself and what you disallow in transmuting history into fiction?
1: I suppose I do have a set of principles in that I have to give the reader a plausible version, I think. So... The personnel have to be in place, the dates have to be right. So if I tell you that the King is having a conversation with the Duke of Suffolk, I might have made that fact up, but I have to be sure that Suffolk is within conversational range so that I can say could have happened that way. I draw the line pretty tightly around what we can establish as fact. I don't make things up unless I have to, I suppose. I think I probably draw the line more tightly than many historical novelists. But then once you're getting into people's heads, what they thought is just the perpetual mystery. So I suppose you would say that the greater part of a novel is made up, no matter how reliant on facts it is. I try, for every little speculation, I try to have a grain of evidence. For instance, the, the fact that through the book from childhood, Cromwell always contrives to have a little dog. This all comes from some letters that are exchanged between England and Calais in 1534, which is all about getting Mr. Secretary a pretty dog. He'd heard of this new kind of spaniel and expressed a wish for one. And it caused a great ferment in the London Calais axis because the question was who would get there first with dog and so please Mr. Secretary. And of course, that's the kind of tiny personal detail that's a gift to a novelist. And you think I can really do a lot with that. So there's very little that solely originates with me. It will originate in some tradition about Cromwell or some footnote or some... At worst, I'll be reading between the lines of something. There is probably an exception to that in that Cromwell had an illegitimate daughter and beyond the fact that she existed... We know very little about her. She comes briefly into the records in an incredibly obscure way. She's in the the archives of the County of Chester. And her story will unfold in the second book. I feel that this is something that a historical novelist can't afford, I can't afford to lose. A biographer would say it in a line or two. But when you're a novelist and you've got this character who's lost his two daughters and then another daughter appears, then that has got to be a story. So the setup for it occurs in novel one. The payoff will be in novel two. Beyond the fact of her existence, I can't account for her. And yet it seems to me the fact of being a novelist demands that I get down and do the work and work out a story which will be plausible for this girl.
0: And that reading between the lines that you just mentioned is presumably even more important when it comes to capturing the emotional life because you can you can extrapolate sort of factual, re- realistic details or f- from those. But tell me about how you try to recapture those 16th century mentalities because if you I mean if you read that you know if someone reads the the dry documents that are preserved often they will seem very remote they'll be linguistically remote their ideas will often seem preoccupied with things which very remote to us and yet on the page in your book they are they are living breathing people with with passions so how does that act of imagination come about do you think
1: that's a really good question because this is the the nub of it, I suppose, and it, it's almost impossible to answer. There's there's a certain document which is a list of um figures, um sums of money. When I, I got this when I saw this, I got incredibly excited about it and wanted to rush around showing it to people and say, look, look at this! isn't it beautiful? Whereas actually it's just a list of figures, but what it is, it's Cromwell saying to Henry, this is where your money comes from, and it's all one piece of paper. And the idea that someone could boil down something incredibly complex and casually push it across the table and say, that's all you need to know tells you a great deal I think about Cromwell's mind and about his relationship with Henry yes I mean first of all there's the fact of the gap between them and us and I think the only way to start bridging that is to try to get a sense of their cultural hinterland think what books they had what what stories they'd grown up on books are actually a very important part of Wolf Hall I wanted to know if someone had read a certain book, what did that book actually look like and what were the illustrations in it and so on. The story of King Arthur is very much knitted in to the Tudor legend and there's a very exciting moment when Gregory Cromwell gets a new King Arthur book and everyone clusters around to look at the illustrations. and. I think you want a sense in that way of what people's cultural hinterland is, and also how they as individuals perceive the world. Cromwell had been in the cloth trade. Uh, He'd been with his father-in-law in a wool trading concern. He'd also lived in Venice and Florence where the luxury fabrics were made and the world to him is very much a matter of texture, weight, dyes, colour. So that gives me a fix on how he might have looked at things and the only way then I suppose is to try to feel your people's lives from the inside out. You want to get so that you can feel their clothes on your back you need to know all the basic things about daily life. It goes without saying. That's not as easy as, as it may sound, because I think you have to assimilate it rather than just be aware of the facts. For a long time, I couldn't see the Tudor world because I was used to looking at the 18th century world. And it's surprising how you can go about with a pair of a sort of magic goggles where you only see 18th century beauty, 18th century proportion. And when you look at a landscape, you slap a frame around it in a particularly 18th century way and you're aware of the picturesque and so on. I had to junk all that and I had to start looking at landscapes let's say you look at a piece of countryside and you're thinking, what are we going to do with this? Is it down to sheep or, you know, um, is this agricultural land? What will we make it yield per acre? You fall into that utilitarian, mercantile mindset where everything can be costed out and put down in a page of an accounts book. How you do that, I don't quite know. I think it's just one of the reasons why a book like Wolf Hall takes a lot of time. Mm. Because you can't just slap the facts together and get on with it. You have to be aware of the psychological shifts as well. The fact is that they are much more fond of authority and tradition than we are. Questioning, which is a virtue with us, is a vice with them. Same goes for ambition. You have to recast your moral universe. So that ambition is a dirty word. And someone like Cromwell has to spend a lot of time and mental energy denying that he is ambitious, while manifesting that he is ambitious in every fibre of his being. And the psychological tenderness is not all on our side either. I was surprised sometimes to find what care people took of each other's feelings in an age when they did the most deplorable things to each other's bodies. So some of the cliches, for instance about romantic love, go out of the window. In the problem with Henry, he's such a modern man. He can't make a, a marriage with a woman without being in love with her. The people around him don't understand this he is far closer to us than some of the other characters are so when he married Anne of Cleves it was no mystery really that he couldn't make a go of it because he simply felt nothing for her and it's rather pathetic and sad that the people around him don't understand that they think why don't you just take her to bed and get on with it and you're feeling they ground shift beneath your feet, you're in a great period of refashioning of ideas as to who one is and how one lives and there's a great deal of thinking going on about the outer man and the inner man and this is why one of my chapters is called Arrange Your Face and it's all about the presentation of self to society.
0: I mean, if Henry is a is a modern man, then Cromwell must be a modern man par excellence, because he, you know, coming from the the humblest of origins, rising so high, but also he's he's intellectually questioning, he's rational, he's sceptical, he's ironic. You know, we, we've talked about this sort of the self-fashioning, mm-hmm. not not relying on the on the lineage and mm-hmm. and the pedigree. He seems to me, at any rate, to be to, to embody many many of the characteristics which would then travel on at great speed through European history for the next several hundred years.
1: I think that's true but I think that it's seldom that all aspects of ourselves are in congruence. and I think Cromwell was one of the people who although he understood that people were led into into marriage by love sometimes I think he was one of the people who did not understand what was happening with Henry of and Anne of Cleves and thought, why can't he simply go to bed with her? That's what we do. So parts of one's personality get left behind, as it were, in the Middle Ages, whilst other parts are proceeding very fast towards the 21st century. It seems to me that Cromwell probably understood money, understood economics at a level that perhaps many of his contemporaries didn't. I think he was probably an economist and they were accountants. I I think that many historians who have tried to work out what Cromwell's achievement was have done him a disservice by seeing him as a kind of ultimate civil servant, as a brilliant administrator. But of course... You have to have something to administer first and I do accept the the idea that Geoffrey Elton had that there was a revolution in government under Cromwell is perhaps now not sustainable because there's also a great deal of continuity there as well in the practices carried on in government for centuries but Cromwell was someone who moved and thought very fast and to a large extent as he said himself at the end of his life he was making things up as he went along so this perfect civil servant begins to look like something else and he, he said when he was called upon to account for this action and that that he had moved so swiftly through circumstances that sometimes there wasn't even a paper trail and he seems to have grasped two things. The the need for innovation, but the need to persuade his countrymen that what he was doing wasn't new at all. It was actually something very old that had just been lost. And this was the only way to smuggle new ideas into Tudor England, was to say, actually they were traditional and fundamental ideas, but for various reasons the passages of the years has obscured them. So the Church of England wasn't new in this formulation. The Church of England was just was old and the kings of England used to be supreme head of the church, the pope is a usurper. and. He had, therefore, to accommodate the predilections of a mindset of his contemporaries. He knew how to do that, but a lot of his ideas were astonishingly radical. The the welfare state would have begun there. It would have had its small beginnings, and he would have imposed income tax to finance it had he been able to persuade Parliament to look at his, his radical poor law. And interestingly, it wasn't Henry who dragged things back. Henry was often in favour of these measures, but although Cromwell was very good at manipulating Parliament to raise taxes for the King, he couldn't entirely drag them into a new world. It's the same problem as now, really, House of Commons packed full of lawyers who look after their own interests. Mm
0: I wanted to ask you, Hilary, too, about Cromwell as a communicator, because very early in the book, we see him speaking Welsh, and no one thought he could speak Welsh. And as the book goes on, we discover he can speak French and Italian and German, and the day his wife dies, he's had a Polish lesson. And at first, you may think that's just a little sort of sidelight on his character. But towards the end of the book, he says that he seems to be forever translating. He's translating between language and language and person and person. And I wondered if you thought that this sort of linguistic facility that he has is somehow an essential part of his character, this ability to to transmit messages or to find the right register or the right tongue to speak to someone in order to get something done.
1: Yes, it does seem... This is all based, in fact, does seem to have picked up languages very rapidly. We don't know when he learned Latin. He, he was learning Greek. He picked up several modern languages. I myself thought he probably didn't speak Spanish or not to any degree until, my, to my surprise, I found out that Catherine of Aragon wrote to him in Spanish. There's a certain ventriloquizing ability here and a certain ability to shape shift, And it makes him, you know, the consummate eavesdropper. Because nothing gets by him. You can't get by Cromwell by changing languages. Yeah, there's a, there's
0: a scene, isn't there, where Mark Smeaton speaking in Flemish, and he's yes. overhearing, and he can understand. It. And I was surprised because you, know, yes. you, you say, and he was speaking his native Flemish tongue, and thank goodness, yeah. he can speak Flemish too.
1: Yes. Well, of course, he'd been in. He, he lived in Antwerp. He he'd been a wool trader in Antwerp. Probably that's where he learned Spanish as well, because they were the occupying power and you would learn the, the language of the oppressor, so to speak. So yes, I can kind of make that a t- trademark in the book. He, he was, of course, Henry's chief propagandist. And probably something I won't be able to go into because of constraints of, of, of space will be the, the use of, of the stage of drama as propaganda for Henry's new regime. Cromwell was a, f- a friend of John Bale, the playwright, and they cooked up together some unlikely scenarios, plays in which King John was was the goodie and not the baddie, and all sorts of subversions of the legends of English history. And we had Lord Cromwell's players going around the country um, we Unfortunately, we don't know w- what plays they were putting on much of the time. But he'd obviously grasped the point that the new truth has had to be pervaded to people in an accessible and highly colourful form. So, you see, what he's not, he's not one of these people of fine and subtle intellect, whose ideas are so fine that they cannot be mediated to the ordinary man. On the contrary, he can write them on placards and parade them around. He knows, I think, how, how ordinary people think and how they learn.
0: Tell me about finding your own language for this book. Did that, did that come naturally, intuitively, or did you have to think quite hard about what the sort of linguistic texture of it would be like?
1: I began writing this book by accident, really, I was working on another novel, which had developed a few problems, not insoluble ones, but I thought I'd take a day off and see what Wolf Hall was going to sound like. I was just curious because that's so fundamental to a historical novel. And then when I wrote my first scene, my first chapter, the the chapter in which Cromwell runs away from home. And so uh, our speech is demotic, he's with his own family. Uh, This is not courtier's speak and I had to find a language for them. It seemed to emerge fairly naturally and I felt the important thing was to try to catch some of the vigour of Tudor English. Not to let them have ideas they couldn't have rather than become fixated on whether a certain word was in use. Having said that, I did spend long sessions with dictionaries, and I often threw out certain words because they did come in too late. Probably when people read the book and they think its idiom is very modern, this is really hidden from them, That I did do a lot of work in that way. What you can't get at, of course, is how people spoke. But through letters, which were so often dictated, you can get some idea of the rhythm of language. And also there's the invaluable George Cavendish, who was a servant of Cardinal Wolsey, and who wrote a memoir of him, a very pacey autobiography, biography rather. George was at the cardinal's side through his glory years and through his fall, and he was at his deathbed. And 20 years later, he decided to write it all down. And he did it as if it were a novel, with, or, or almost like a film with wonderful jump cuts. And he writes dialogue. And you think very well some of it he's reconstituted, but some of it, you think, it must have lodged in his mind. So through George Cavendish you can hear Cromwell and Wolsey talking to each other and this was so valuable to me. And I would say I used that book as a template for much of the language. It's d- difficult to exercise because you're going back pre-Shakespeare and it's almost impossible when you're writing English characters to stop them thinking in the language of Shakespeare and the King James Bible. So I'm sure I slipped very often, but I did try, it's just like facts, you try to make it your version at least plausible. Mm. But I think also to me, accessibility was a great thing. I don't want language to get in the way. And I didn't want the book to become about language.
0: I also wanted to compliment you on your your virtuous use of punctuation. I mean, it's something which, you know, maybe maybe a lot of readers don't pick up on, but I I thought there was an immense subtlety in the different weight that you accorded to punctuation, the difference between a colon here or a semicolon there. And that really, the rhythm of the prose was really enabled by the way that you, you thought about those things.
1: That that governs governs everything for me. I hear what i'm writing and so punctuation i'm really using as the rest for the voice it's a breath pause as far as i'm concerned and i spend a lot of time trying to balance sentences and rebalance them and then once you've done that then there's the bigger unit of the paragraph in which to to balance the re- rhythm. This can be frustrating if you've got to pull a word out because you've decided it's too modern a word. So you can find, because you've got one syllable less or the stress in a different place, you find yourself in for rewriting a whole paragraph. I don't mind that as long as it comes out right. Again, it's something that's invisible to most readers. But that is, I think style is about that to me. This sounds really pretentious, I suppose, but I actually think of composing rather than, than writing, because in a novel there is so much more to be done than slapping the facts down on the page. And, of course, you're using dialogue especially to characterise people and to push the plot forward. So, again, every line of dialogue has to be thought through, and it has to be sayable. I think whether it's narrative prose or dialogue, if you can't speak it out loud, you probably shouldn't be writing it.
0: Well, I mean, I oh, I reached page nineteen in the book, and I rushed to show my partner and say, "Just look at this bravura lo- use of punctuation." <laughs> I just picked out this paragraph, and I think it's it's um where you you're you've just recently introduced Woolsey, I think, and just the, the different weights of dashes and semicolons and colons. It just seemed to me, and then you know, as I read on, I saw that that was, that was something that was sort of part of the texture of your prose, which is this incredible sensitivity to the, the different weights and the balances of the parts of sentences.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you wonder whether people notice. But it, it, it's fundamental to me. The, you know, I love Annie Proulx for the way she weights and balances a paragraph. I think some writers do think at the level of the individual sentence, but it actually has to work as, as part of the larger unit. And what goes along with it is an appreciation for how it should sound If you had this perfect actor who would read it out for you, you know, the the parenthesis is a little drop of the voice, a a little hasty demurral, And at other places, you've got the sort of thump of the the, colon, the rest there. So I suppose in a way it's... I can't write poetry because I don't see the subjects. I don't pick the subject for a poem. But I do take a lot of care in the way I imagine a poet would, about rhythm and and balance. I find myself, you know, it's difficult to talk about it because it's so much taken for granted as I write.
0: If Wolf Hall rehabilitates, in a sense, Thomas Cromwell's reputation, I suppose Anne Boleyn is one character who's... Uh, who in your estimation, perhaps, uh, has been overvalued by history. Would that be that be fair? She's quite a she's quite a hard calculating I think, um what did you say, um not a carnal being, a calculating being at one stage. Yes. And her eyes you depict as very hard and black, like the beads on an abacus. And so she's clear she's clearly not a, a character who endeared herself to you.
1: From man's portrait, you you do get these image of these very very black eyes not very large and from the moment i got that image of her eyes flicking like the beads of an abacus she was done for i think in terms of how her characterization was going to go obviously she was not going to emerge as a feminist heroine in this book It's much more the kind of old tradition of Anne as the mistress on the make, which used to hold sway in romantic fiction before the feminist slant was put on her story. But I think she's something else in this book as well. Cromwell sees her as a fellow trader. She's trading her body part by part and inch by inch. And he respects her for that. They don't like each other but it's as if they see. She knows what Cromwell is and he knows what she is and they are two desperately ambitious human beings and for a moment, for some years in fact, they can form an alliance. They're both going in the same direction until at the beginning of the new book suddenly they are not. And. Of course, as soon as that image came to me of the abacus, you see, I'm trying always to look through Cromwell's eyes, and I thought, ah, now the secret here is that this terrific sexual allure she has for most of the men in her circle for him it doesn't work. Whether that was true or not, I I, I can't say, but it was part of the building of the character of both of them that. He treats her, if you like, better than most of the men around her because he treats her as a rational creature with rational desires, which is to be queen. And they know exactly what is in each other's minds. But he doesn't flatter her. This is perhaps why they are successful in working together, because they can come clean with each other, I think. I don't think my portrait to is is unsympathetic. But then you see, I don't think my portrait of Thomas More is entirely unsympathetic. I think I'm coming at both of them through Thomas Cromwell's eyes. And we're very, we're completely unused to looking at them from that viewpoint. And that's why it's slightly shocking and seems harsh.
0: Let me ask you finally, Hilary, you're you're writing the the second volume at the moment. Are you still making discoveries about your characters? Are they still able to surprise you in, in, in ways you didn't expect?
1: Yes, absolutely, because when I go into a new scene, I've by no means decided how it will unfold. I've obviously got basic shape, but I research and write at the same time. I know where we're going and I know what information must be conveyed to the reader, but the interactions of the personnel in each scene are completely hidden from me till I set them ticking, as it were. And I think it's the only way to keep a book lively is to constantly surprise yourself. To work creatively, it has to appear that your characters have free will. you're writing a historical novel, where you've essentially made all the decisions on the basis of research before you start. You're going to have something that's dead on the page. And what you have to do is at least to appear to turn the people loose in each scene to do their best or do their worst. So I try not to overplot. I try to do it in the same way as I would do a contemporary novel. So what I have to do, because I do know the end, and we all know the end, I have to suspend that knowing. Actually, in in the New York Review piece, Stephen Greenblatt put it far more neatly than I can, because he said that, for Mantel, the idea of the historical novel is to arrive at a position of ignorance. And that's absolutely right. We're trying to not exclude irony, but to exclude hindsight.
0: I was talking to Hilary Mantel about Wolf Hall, the book which won the 2009 Booker Prize for Fiction. I hope you've enjoyed this programme, which was sponsored by Blackwell Online. There are lots more popularity interviews in the pipeline across a wide variety of subjects, so I hope you'll find inspiration for your winter reading in the weeks ahead. For the moment, it only remains for me to thank you for listening and to say, until next time, goodbye.